Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go, Cosmo Macero. Then, Doug Banks, editor of the Boston Business Journal, joins Cosmo for an interview. And last up, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. Hello, Kyan. She is the familiar voice of OA On Air. She is my colleague of Seven Letter Public Relations and Communications, and uh, we get a lot to talk about this week. Busy week. Busy week. Hey, let's start in with um, some CDC changed recommendations, some new recommendations or regulations here in Massachusetts relaxed around the use of masks uh, and just an overall uh, positive trend um, uh, in absolutely the right direction with regard to COVID-19. Yeah, CDC has uh, come out and said, okay, maybe we don't need masks when we're outside and can be socially distanced, um, which is very nice to hear. Unfortunately, I do think it underscores criticisms that people who were perhaps more conservative or leaning in a certain direction about their general response to COVID originally felt, Uh, you know, which is a little frustrating because it's so easy to generalize this, but, you know, people forget that this virus is still in its absolute infancy and these we're learning. We are learning every day a little bit more about what works, what doesn't work, how it's transmitted. Um, but if you are fully vaccinated, you do not have to wear a mask outside if you can, particularly if you can keep social distance. Um, you know, as we look at businesses opening and how people are going to bring customers back, obviously this is a big change. Uh, how businesses decide to handle guidelines um, such as masks and distancing as they reopen is going to play a big part in probably how successful some of them are. Um, people, I think, are generally looking for places where it's like a mask-free zone, and depending on the business and um, where you are located geographically in the United States, but also just the personal feelings, I think, to a certain extent of, you know, management and leaders, it's going to be different everywhere. Uh, we're seeing it even worldwide. Mask mask wearing is, is different country by country. So it's sort of, it's a relief, but we just, there's still so much we don't know. But I think it's all good. It makes yeah. me excited. I mean, you see- You said something really important for those fully vaccinated and every day more and more people are and the progress is actually um, not just significant, but also remarkable how fast uh, rapidly we are all being vaccinated. But, um, you know, at some point. There's going to be people who are never vaccinated. They're just off. And also, is it, you know. I don't know, force of habit. It's I'm not paranoid. I'm vaccinated, but you know, for me, I'm still like I'm. I got the I get the I get the mask around my neck or whatever. I got got a bunch of them in, in my truck. I'm still wearing a mask when I go into a store for for certain. Yeah. Uh, and, and really not out of necessarily protecting myself, uh, uh, though I though I believe it's protective, but. 
just because I think it's the respectful, correct thing to do still. And as far as outdoors, well, it's just a matter of, you know, convenience. You know, so you got the thing on or around my neck. At, at, at what point are people going to say, well, why is that guy still wearing a mask? Like, <laughs> when, when, is the, when do we go back the other direction? And it's like back to, hey, take that mask off. What are you, some kind of a... What are you, some kind of a, a bandit? You know, I, I, yeah. When do we go back to thinking that someone in a store wearing a mask is about to rob the place? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, mean, I don't know. I, there was a point where I was like, we're going to be wearing masks forever. Get used to it. We're, you know, this is we, we might as well be in, uh, I mean, in, in a dust bowl somewhere. And and I guess not. I guess we're not wearing masks forever, but I'm still wearing it in most conditions where I would have would have you know three months ago. Just because I feel like it, it, it's not that big of a deal, and it's probably the the, the better decision. But it, I just think well, it's a good still sign. You have to wear it inside if you're, even if you're vaccinated. You still have to, you know, the recommendation and I think the guideline is still to wear it inside um, because uh, we haven't reached the levels of vaccination for adults that they're looking for, which is, uh, you know, seventy percent up, um, and we're just not there yet. And you know, what's going What's going to be telling in sort of the vaccine debate is really when it gets to a certain place where it's, if you're vaccinated, you can do all of these things, go to all of these places. And if you're not, there are going to be some businesses that just say, you can't come here. You can't utilize this service. Um, and does that ultimately sway people? I don't know. But we still have, we just still have so far to go. So it's like at this point, we've been wearing these things for a year now. Just keep it on. It's just not that big of a deal. Outside, if you're socially distanced, don't. But yeah, if you're inside, because we just, we still don't know enough yet. Yeah. And, and, you know, as companies are trying to really wrap their heads around this and how best to serve customers and bring people back safely to keep people employed and, you know, keep their businesses open, the more cooperation and honestly, like just general kindness and respect that we can show each other is really where we need to be, people. <laughs> no, and I that, agree. I mean, look, I, I think I think for the day. Restaurants, nightclubs, bars. I, I, I think that they are just um, culturally want to get people back in and under normal conditions, right? Even if, if and I'm not saying it's that's the case. Even if it, if it was true or if it seems like that could be an environment where you might more easily spread, and I'm not sure if that's the case or not, the science is all over the place. I think that's what to expect. But you know what? If you're a drugstore or, or, or a small grocery store, you might feel that it makes your customers more comfortable to have no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service. Big deal. <laughs> How long do you spend in the drugstore? Ten minutes? Is it gonna, Is it going to kill you? It's not going to bother me, especially if it is a um, obviously a private business. Yeah, I, I think lifting the outdoor mandate makes sense simply because it's pretty easy to regulate your contact with others when you're outdoors, unless you're at you know, uh, unless you're at Boston Calling, and that's a whole different story. Yeah, and I mean they've essentially said that for events, like large events like that, sports concerts, they're still going to say you should be wearing a mask outside if it's going to be that crowded. I mean, look, call me conservative. I'm I got my second shot. I'm fully vaccinated. I'm in no rush to be in a packed bar in Boston inside anytime soon. 
um, for probably more reasons than one, but th that's not an environment I'm going to put in, but, you know, to each his own. Yeah. All right. I'm calling you conservative. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's move on to a uh, related topic, and that is that is the dynamic in the modern workplace, particularly the office, particularly downtown offices. And there is um, research emerging, I think it was the Mass Business Roundtable from a John Chesto story in the Boston Globe and a McKinsey Company study that shockingly indicates that the traditional um, corporate attitude toward hybrid work um, policies, meaning work at home, remote work, some level of that, you know, broad strokes, generally, it had been eh, about 20% of your workplaces are going to have some kind of a, you know, meaningful policy that allows that type of flexibility. And 80% are like, Monday through Friday, business hours, we'll see you here in the office. Now, looks like that is flipping, completely flipping around that essentially the majority, vast majority of your corporate environments, uh, uh, surveyed by the Mass Business Roundtable and McKinsey, 80% are saying, yeah, times have changed. Uh, that's a huge sea change that's going to have a lot of impact, both good and bad, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's any surprise that after a year of letting people have complete autonomy and freedom over their lives, their schedule, and their jobs, that the vast majority of people are saying, yeah, no, I'm not going to go back to that that lifestyle. Um, I am certainly one of them. <laughs> uh, the, the flexibility, the lack of commuting, the, um, the more time I'm able to be present and at, at home and involved with, you know, my child's life to me has been invaluable and certainly not something I'm, I, I want to go backwards on. Um, you know, at the beginning of all of this, just over a year ago, as most people know, I came out to California and I've been working here since then um, without any issue. So it's like we have proven that anything is possible. Uh, so it's sort of hard to put the cat back in the bag, so to speak. Uh, what it's going to do for real estate, for cost savings for businesses is, I mean, we're about to just see a huge shift. Real estate prices are going to have to change. Businesses are going to be able to save in a lot of areas on rent. Um, you know, if people aren't trying to get to Boston every day, they don't necessarily need to live within a certain distance of Boston, which now opens up other parts of the state for real estate, for housing. Uh, that's pretty incredible. Like the, the ripple effect that this is going to have will be seen for, for years, if not more. Those people are called the digital nomads. Future Ooh, topic here names? on Three Two One Go. The digital nomads—they can work from anywhere in the country, or in the world, even. And I agree with you on that. Here's the downsides: certainly, real estate. Um, yes, the, there's the cost savings from the renter uh, perspective. But number one, there's so much capital tied up in Class A and B office space. There's so much capital and uh, being invested in in and buildings going up right now. Yeah. Um, still, that's a huge problem. And 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 there's going to be disruption. And I don't mean the fun kind of, ooh, whiz bang. I mean, like, <laughs> things. The, the business is going to get bleeped up by this. That's one thing. Number two, 
the entire economy of business that relies on a downtown workforce. That, that's a major part of the economy, the service economy. And so yeah. you're right. There's going to be shifts. There's going to be major changes. They're inevitable. It's not like it's someone's fault. It's not like, I mean, I know that the the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry is, is, is a different example where they're saying, please open this thing up, relax the rules, let us, let us survive. You can't you, you can't have the same type of message about the entire downtown economy, right? You, you have to come back to the office because otherwise the dry cleaners are all going to go out of business. Hey, look, our habits have changed, and and many people, not all, and some companies have a very different view. Some companies want to snap back to the way things were. Um, it's you know that's that's the reality of it. So it, it's going to be. I think one of the most fascinating and uh, and challenging periods in our economy to, to see how it evolves. Yeah, I mean, with monumental sort of shifts like this is where change really comes from, too. You know, not to sound like overly philosophical, but there is never going to there's never a a reset quite like this unless you're forced into it. So yes, while so many, you know, smaller coffee shops, cafes, and lunch spots downtown are are certainly struggling. And um, that is an issue that we need to contend with. The options that are opening up outside of downtown, like, hey, maybe you live an hour outside of the city and you've been driving in and you because you've had this little, you know, mom and pop coffee shop in the financial district that has stayed in business and maybe you can't, but maybe now you can open that shop somewhere closer to home and have a lower rent and change your quality. Like I'm not saying it's all that idyllic (laughs) by any (laughs) stretch of the imagination, but the options are endless. And it's, we're, as I said, we're going to be seeing this for a long time. Um, The ripples are, are going to be far and wide. Indeed, they are. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> we'll see what happens with that. That's going to be fascinating to watch. Let's shift gears one more time to the New York Times, New York Times opinion page um, or opinion section, which, by the way, has been embroiled in one controversy after the next. And I guess that this this new announcement from them, this change may be related to it, because otherwise, my view is, is this really does this really have to be news? Bottom line, the New York Times is changing the name of op-eds and the op-ed, uh, you know, the op-ed, uh, traditional op-ed submission. Uh, in other words, a guest column uh, of so many words that would be submitted, if it's the New York Times, is probably someone of substance and intellect and experience and, uh, and a journalistic achievement. Not always, uh, but nonetheless, that's what you'd read in the New York Times and, and I think they were established as op-eds about 50 years ago. That was the name opposite the editorial page, not opposite as in an answer to an editorial, but just on the other side of the double truck. Uh, that's uh, old person, old people talk for opening up the newspaper. And, and now they're saying, you know what, that's old school. We're going to call them guest commentaries, which is fine. Again, it, do we really have to make news talking about this? Um, I, I, I guess so. And uh, the one thing that I would say is that the op-ed, the lexicon of that has certainly traveled and is routinely used 
uh, certainly by myself and I imagine you and others in referring to, oh, we're going to, you know, we have a client that has a great perspective on the economy and uh, they're submitting an op-ed to the Boston Globe or, or, the, or the New York or the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I, I'll probably still say that, but the New York Times says <laughs> they're, they're now called guest commentaries and that's fine too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's newsworthy because it's the New York Times has often led the way for journalism in, in this regard, right? Um, Op-ed started in, what, 1970, um, but it's a recognition that the name comes from an outdated place. Most people are now reading their news online. So they don't, they no longer know that it's opposite the editorial page. So for that reason, it simply doesn't make logistical sense anymore. Um, I think what it loses a little bit, whether it's real or not, is the, the gravitas like of being like, oh, I had a guest essay. Just doesn't sound the same as I had an op-ed. Um, but that hopefully will change over time. What we'll then see is, does that mean that they're going to welcome more? Because what we've also seen in recent years is, you know, whether it's the New York Times, the, the Boston Globe for sure, it is harder and harder to get these sort of guest pieces to run. Um, and it would be great to see that sort of expand a little bit. Now, in recognition that things are digital, most people aren't reading that hard copy anymore. Is Can we now make a little bit more space? I, I agree. I, I believe there's great demand and or audience for more opinion, opinion journalism, uh, more opinion from the community. And there was a time when certainly the Boston Globe recognized that and expanded their digital arena for that. You may recall something called the Podium. I thought it was a terrific innovation, and I and I'm not I still don't understand why it was discontinued. Maybe they weren't getting enough quality submissions, but uh, you know, yeah, the digital space is essentially infinite. Doesn't mean you you your standards have to be you know open ended. It just means that you, you you can you don't have to be you don't have to be limited by physical space, but um, I, I agree. I think you know people like a credible sort of recognized um, you know admired venue for their for their written work. It's great that you can post something on Medium, you know, and have your own and, and get an audience or start a Substack, but a third-party media brand, even if it's new, that people recognize as, oh, that's like, I guess the Huffington Post is the best recent example, right? What, 20 years, I guess, or whatever it may be. <laughs> a Huffington Post byline is, is, I think, something that people are like, wow, that's great, you know? Um, yep. And that, that was just sort of created within our, certainly within our adult lifetime. So um, it's, good to, it's a good topic. I, I, I love... Opinion pieces, guest commentary, guest essays, and good old-fashioned op-eds. I love reading them, and uh, you know, and, and and I think that they're a terrific form of thought leadership, uh, you know, uh, visibility and public uh, public awareness. So, yeah, uh, big news in that world with the New York Times changing its name. Now, guest essays. Guest essays. Okay, awesome. Um, wow, what a cool uh, set of topics today, Kyan. Thanks so much. Um, that's going to do it for this edition of 321 Go on OA On Air. 
Our program is recorded remotely by our seven-letter personnel statewide and across the Commonwealth and across the USA. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Okay, up next on OA On Air, we're joined by Doug Banks, executive editor of the Boston Business Journal, also treasurer of the board of Right Boston, the organization he's here to talk about today. Doug, good to have you back on. It's been some time on OA On Air. Thanks so much for having me, Cosmo. Excellent. Um, I want to get in in a few minutes, just uh, at least briefly, into a pretty interesting story that uh, the BBJ had uh, this week, as well as, I guess, uh, business journals around the country in terms of some research into the willingness and readiness of people in the business communities of America to return to in-person events. Uh, Some fascinating stuff. But first off, let's talk about a great organization founded here in Boston almost 20 years ago. I think 2002, it's called Right Boston. Um, uh, You've been a a supporter and and, a board member. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy that you got not just myself, but our agency involved several years ago in, in, in becoming engaged with the great work of Right Boston and what it does for, for kids in the city. So um, let's start there. Well, thanks so much, Cosmo, for your support and for talking about Right Boston today. It's a it's a great organization. It's a nonprofit that had started out as part of the Menino, uh, Mayor Menino administration and um, spun out as a 501c3 nonprofit uh, a few years ago now. Uh, and it really does two two main things. It's uh, it runs Boston's only citywide high school newspaper, written by and for teens, and that's called Teens in Print. And um, it uh, also teaches teachers how to teach writing. So it does professional development for public school teachers, not only in Boston but in um, other cities. So Revere, Chelsea, Everett. Um, we go, you know, up to in, up to Worcester, Lawrence. So a number of different uh, city. Uh, school districts helping to teach teachers how to teach writing. So it's um it's got a dual purpose around educating young people on how to to communicate. It teaches critical thinking, and of course, it's the social justice component of helping to elevate our city's kids um, as they try to navigate this world. And um, it's been it's been just a pleasure to uh, to help um, to grow the organization and let more people know about it. It's got a positive impact on about 7,000 students each year. That alone is just a remarkable statistic and, and, and the, uh, a tremendous uh, level of impact. Teens in Print uh, is, is, is a, just a terrific uh, you know, venue for, uh, for student writing and journalism and creativity. Um, talk a little bit about how you've been involved over the years, what the BBJ, I know the BBJ is um, has been supportive also. We've had some of the kids over to do a podcast uh, sort of tutorial at the OA On Air studio. Um, it, it's a cause that media, I know in Boston, has uh, has been supportive of. Well, for me, I mean, I grew up in the city of Worcester myself. My dad was a public school teacher. Um, I was a product of the public schools in the city. I went to UMass Amherst, which was a public school. I went to 
University of Pittsburgh, which is a public school. Like I am a product of the public school system. So when I found out that it was an organization that was serving public school kids and teaching journalism, teaching writing, um, obviously that's been my career uh, my whole life. It was a perfect fit for me. So as soon as I learned about this organization six years ago, I wanted to be involved. Um, it's been great to see the Business Journal. We've actually hosted groups of kids that when they do the, the work of Teens in Print, they all get together a couple times a week. And for us, for the last three years now, obviously not last year because nobody was working in the office, but for the two years previous and hopefully going forward, we would bring a group of kids every Monday afternoon after school. And those uh, the young folks would, would come in with their instructors and they would do the journalism. They would, they would report, they would write their stories, they'd learn journalism and they work in our, uh, out of our office on Monday afternoon. So we got to work with the kids hands-on and uh, of course, uh, you know, help talk to them, whatever they need. So um, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. That's great. Now, you've got an event coming up May 6th, Pros and Conversation. Um, I'm guessing probably your biggest event of this year. Um, It it attracts uh, people from all over the communications and journalism industry, as well as as other industries, over 200 professionals. Talk about Pros and Conversation and and what, uh, what to expect. So most, so you're absolutely right. It's right Boston's annual fundraising event. It's um, unlike most galas, most fundraising events. This is, uh, we actually, they'll have speakers this every year. It features authors. We have three featured authors. Um, Janae Osterhelt uh, is the culture columnist at the Boston Globe. They've got a stat, uh, stat news writer, Nicholas St. Floor, the editorial page editor for the Boston Globe, being a Venkataraman. It's going to be phenomenal, but it, what's great about it, what I love about it, and what I think people would really enjoy is these, like, authors, these like big names are going to be interviewed by high school students. And you never know where the high school students are going to go. The, the, they have no, there's no fear. Like adults, sometimes, you know, we might be concerned like these kids, they go right at them. They ask the tough questions. They ask amazingly creative questions. It's just such a fun opportunity. They have over the years, they've interviewed Pulitzer Prize winning authors. And every single time to a one, these authors will come out of these uh, these opportunity, these interviews and say, that was the best interview I've ever had. It's so much fun to hear the kind of things that the young people are thinking about as they look at, you know, their own future as potential journalists or writers in, in their own ways. That's terrific. And that's coming up May 6th. Um, we're talking to Doug Banks, executive editor of the Boston Business Journal here on OA On Air. been talking about Right Boston. Let's shift gears for a moment just to a story you had this week uh, based on some research uh, into into the very uh, significant population of people who've attended Business Journal events over the years around the country. Uh, and, and it uh, provided a lot of insight into how people feel about returning to in-person events as well as uh, sort of other, there are other views on, uh, you know, returning, uh, the return to work dynamic and how that's going. Um, pretty interesting findings. So, you're absolutely right, Cosmo. So we're talking about you know events like Pros and Conversation with Right Boston. Obviously, that is normally an in-person event, right? But this year it's going to be virtual. Um, it'll be you know an hour online, and so the benefits that people get from being at, at an in-person event it's just not it's not quite the same, uh, and yet after this past year with the pandemic and with the economic shutdowns and with different states 
holding different sort of gatekeeping moments as to when they're going to open everything up. Um, we surveyed, our parent company surveyed over 8,000 people in 44 different cities to ask them the basic question, when would you feel comfortable you know, attending a, a business networking event like, like a gala or like a, an awards program like Best Places to Work or 40 Under 40 or some of the business journal signature events? And what the, the findings were interesting. So a lower percentage of respondents were ready for in-person events if you looked at the, the coasts. So along the coasts, so whether it's Boston or DC or San Francisco or Seattle, um, only about 30% of respondents were ready to attend an in-person event right now. Um, only 17% would be ready now in Boston. 27% would be likely to be ready in three to six months. Um, and then another 22% would need more than six months. So if you think about that, the vast majority of Boston um, people who would normally attend a, a, a business networking event, the vast majority are not ready until it's probably you know Labor Day at this point. And yeah. that's pretty much what we're finding with some of the event companies and meeting planners that we've spoken to is that it's you know we have to slowly ease into it. In the middle of the country, in some of the Midwestern cities, as much as 50% of folks are ready are ready to attend an event in the next couple of months. You know, it's funny, that Labor Day kind of time frame, it's pretty consistent with, this is unscientific, but consistent anecdotally with, you know, what a lot of companies are doing. And maybe it's because, hey, you know what, let's give the workforce the summer to just kind of ease back into things and to maybe enjoy some time out, you know, uh, some normalcy during the summer. But I think a lot of companies, ours included, planning that that phased return around Labor Day. It's, it, it seems to be kind of a, a, a target date for um, resuming more normal operations. I think you're absolutely right. I think what, you know, what we all experience in a New England spring is that like, that feeling like, okay, we've been hibernated for a couple of months. Well, for most of us, we've been hibernated for over a year at this point. So now with the warm weather coming, the, sp the spring and the summer give us this nice natural ramp up period. And so that by the time Labor Day hits, I think most people will be ready to start attending in-person, intern, you know, um, uh, inside events, right? I mean, I think that most of us will be feeling pretty comfortable in July and August to go to the beach and not have to wear a mask and that sort of thing. But um, come Labor Day, as we th start thinking about going back to the office, back to work, back to a, a networking event of some kind, um, I think most of the event planners in town, hotels and the venues are all are all looking at that as sort of the tipping point of when that might, you know, where we might get close. It's going to take a while before we get back to where things were two years ago, but, uh, that's, but we're getting there and that, that's, that feels good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It, it, I gotta, I gotta be honest. It, it's all of a sudden I, you, you look around and you, and I'm thinking, um, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure when I felt or if I felt, you know, eight months ago or even six months ago, if we get to this point and it would, and, and here we are, um, there were some dark days in the spring of 2020 and, uh, and, and it's, it's good to experience, um, you know, light at the end of the tunnel and, uh, and, uh, you know, a, a, a mix, I'll mix my metaphors and, and, a, and a horizon that looks a lot better than, uh, uh, than what we've seen.
Yeah, it's, um, you know, Massachusetts in particular is more conservative, uh, more cautious, if you will. We just heard, you know, New York City is opening up uh, in July. Uh, we won't be 100% open until August 1st. As of the time that we're talking, who knows, Governor Baker may change that, make it a little bit earlier. But but we've got a couple of signposts, you know, we've got some May dates that yep. we'll be able to open up a little bit more broadly. Uh, by the end of the month, Red Sox, you know, games will be, uh, you know, be seeing a lot more crowds there. And it's just, uh, like you said, it's not just a light at the end of the tunnel, but you can, you can see those lampposts that are sort of marking the way so that we can now finally see how to get there. And, uh, you know, everybody, I think everybody's feeling pretty optimistic at this point, which is great. The New England Patriots drafted a top quarterback. Things are, things are looking up. Right. Absolutely. Yes. It's a uh, first time we've had a first round quarterback. Pick. So we'll uh, let's hope that's uh, let's hope there's better things to come for sure. All right. We've been talking to Doug Banks, executive editor of the Boston Business Journal. Right. Boston pros and conversations in May 6th. That is definitely one of the five things you'll need to know on that day. Uh, Doug, thanks a lot for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much, Cosmo. It's been great to talk to you again. All right. Hi, Cayenne. Welcome back. It's great to have you. Hi, Two Tom. With Cayenne and Tom. <laughs> bumper stickers are coming. And buttons. <laughs> bumper stickers are coming. <laughs> oh, gosh. What, what does that mean? That we're, we're signaling the 2022 elections or something? No, just we're just going to promote Two Minutes with Tom, and then it'll just say, and Cayenne in small font at the bottom. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> well... Here we are. How are you? The week that Joe Biden made a statement before Congress, and what a statement it was. What a speech. An hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, a very, a very long speech. <laughs> it was a very long speech. But you know what? And, and it was divided in part between the Republicans and their sentiment of policy and the, and the Democrats. But by and large, it was, um, it, was a very, it, was a, it was a real departure from where any president has been since FDR. And... Um, just showing a whole different direction that this Democrat, Joe Biden, is going to take for the people of the United States by putting them back to work and uh, and making sure that you know that that the you know that the wealth of the country gets gets spread around a little bit, whether it's through taxing wealthier people and giving more to programs that need that need to be done in the way of infrastructure. It's really really very important, and I think he. He took a moment in time to talk about his first 100 days and the success that he's had in that 100 days, especially with the COVID, and how he had promised that 100 million people would be vaccinated in his 100 days or in the first uh, in the first days of his administration, and he's doubled that number. It, it's a fascinating story, and it's, a, I think, a story of success. It remains to be seen about the legislation he's talking about and the success that it has. A lot of it, I think, is going to get through. A lot of it is going to be left on the on the on the cutting room floor, but you know we're, we're going to watch it. At least he has a willingness to provide the leadership that I think America needs to get out of the doldrums and the economic slump that it's been in. Yeah, I mean it was certainly a remarkable speech. He he talked about so many that seemingly might seem like big goals, but you can tell that when he's speaking, they don't feel too big to him. Like, right. I don't think he 
is speaking in a way where, you know, for some of us listening, it's like, wow, like, how are you going to get that? I really think he's like, this is all manageable. And there's no reason we shouldn't be doing these things. There's no reason families and children shouldn't be supported and daycare shouldn't be, you know, readily available and, and at a cost that people can afford so that people can get back to work and, you know, all of these other things. And we would, you know, it'd be remiss if we didn't comment too on just the, the imagery of it. You know, he was flanked by two women um, in in very leader senior leadership positions within our country. We've never seen anything quite like that. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi has been in that seat for quite some time. But um, it, in looking at it, and you know, obviously Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris, it was a visual that really sort of resonated and made you think too, like, okay. This is a different time. This, just from the way it looks, you can tell it, things are different now. I, I agree with you, Kyan, and it's um, it's a, it's about time, as the president said. It's about time. Yeah. Can you imagine a, a, a person of color and a and and the Speaker of the House, both women, sitting behind the President of the United States as he gives his statement to the Congress. It's um, it's, it's a great visual. It's a great visual. It is. Feeling good. It was a firm takeaway. Busy week. I mean, with this, so with any very large speech um, from a president always comes a rollout of policies and plans. I think we saw a lot of that this week focused a lot on the workforce, whether it was a minimum wage for federal contractors at $15 an hour. Um, multiple announcements about really supporting union organizing and the right to organize. So a real focus on the workforce this week. All in all, it's Friday morning. Do you think Joe Biden is feeling good and like he accomplished what he wanted to this week? Is he is he feeling on top? I think I think he's feeling pretty good about about the administration and the work that he's done. I also think that um, you know he thinks he's got a long road to go. Um, you know, but there have been more. There have been more controversial issues that have been dealt with this week and in the first weeks of his administration. You know, the transgender items have come up, both for the military as well as for acceptance. Um, Controversial, not in my mind, but controversial around the country. And that's such a departure from where we had been for the last four years. It's such, it's, and and it's so moving uh, and and, and so welcoming that, um, you know, he he just is a very different man. I, I think... As I've been saying, yeah, he, he he has been the breath of fresh air that this country has needed. He's a calming influence that this company country has needed. And now, after 20 years, he's pulling the the, tro- the troops out of Afghanistan. Um, just saying, enough is enough. I, mm-hmm. I applaud I applaud the man. I applaud everything he's done. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. Yep. Thank you, Kyan. Appreciate it. Bye bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.